Hello everybody, welcome to this edition of Coffee Time with Byron. I am your host, Byron. This is episode number 57. No, 58, sorry, 58. Mixed up there a little bit. But alongside me is former Major League player, Major League Baseball player, former resident here, the family still lives here in the Sarasota area, Brian McRae. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, thank you, Byron yourself. Hanging in there, what can we say? Another day you live, right, with the coronavirus around still? I mean, it's another day. <laughs> Hate to say that, but, thanks, but it's true. Getting a little bit better. People are traveling, getting out, doing more. Restrictions are hopefully lifted, so uh, that that's all a good sign. Exactly, exactly. You got that right. So what I want to begin with... I, I've asked this a couple uh, to a couple of my guests. Uh, we just had the Olympics last year. Were you able to watch any of it? And a little bit. Were uh, Were you surprised that Team USA did not get gold, or do you think they could have won gold, but they kind of couldn't stand a chance because they were up against an All Star team in Team Japan? Well, I think the format for the Olympics, the, the baseball format, kind of, uh, it, it's a bad setup for the United United States because the best players are not playing. So you have, you know, you have some uh, former big leaguers, guys that did some, uh, you know, did some good things, have good careers in the big leagues, but they're not at the top of their game that were there mixed in with minor league players. And I think don't think that's the best representative representation of United States you know, team USA baseball. But I think they played as well as they could under the circumstances. And, and the medal, um, I think, was uh, was not a bad thing. It's just the way it's set up. The World Baseball Classic, which hadn't been played in a while, is a. I think that's a better representation of all the countries as opposed to how the Olympics is set up because you have the best players or more of the best players that are playing in the World Baseball Classic. That's what that's that's what's kind of funny to me in a weird way if you kind of think about it. The MLB cares more about the World Baseball Classic because they're the ones who brought it back. They started it, I think, back in 06 or 07. But yet, when it's the Olympics time... They can give a hoot's hoot about the Olympics, even though the World Baseball Classic is still the same with country-wise. I don't understand it. Like players want to play for. Well, I, I think for baseball, baseball in the Olympics, and I don't think it's going to be played. I think it's not going to be in Paris, right? It's 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 gone. Probably not. No, yeah, because from what I hear, it goes. And we may by, not see it. We may yeah. not see it again. Right, from what I in the Olympics for a long time, baseball and softball. Yeah, from what I understand, yeah, yeah from what I understand is that uh, by the by the city, it goes by the city, and if whoever's hosting in the country, if they don't play baseball, then they don't they don't play that at all in the Olympics. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's true, but Almost every European country plays baseball. France plays a good brand of baseball. I just don't think that they're putting it in the in the Olympics. There, um, 
I think baseball should be taken, baseball and softball should be taken away from the Olympics and just play their own tournaments like they're playing internationally and doing those things. Because during the Olympics, you don't have the best players. You have the best players and the best athletes in other sports, but in baseball, you you don't. And in basketball, it was like that for a while, too, until Team USA got beat, and then they started presenting over to all-star teams. But unless you can have the best players competing, and if you have another stage, the World Baseball Classic and some of these other international events, just keep playing them because there's only really five or six countries that play a good brand of baseball. Very there's good. Canada, United States, Mexico, and then there's Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and Cuba. True. For the most part, that play a real good band. You know, Dominican, Puerto Rican teams, uh, Venezuelan, they're okay. But on a national, uh, international stage, there's probably five to seven teams that can really, or countries that can really put together real good teams. So stick to those countries. I know they're trying to grow the game globally. And they do play baseball in Europe, and they do play baseball in some of these uh, other countries. It's just not a good brand right now. I agree with you on that, and it just sucks to see, but it's true. And like you said, I don't think we're ever, even if they do have baseball, say, in the Olympics, I agree with you and a lot of other guests. Money, money, money talks, and they're not going to allow, MLB is not going to allow their players to play in the summertime. I know. It, it shouldn't be. Yeah. So I because if you go that. back to the true nature of the Olympics, it was supposed to be the best amateurs from yeah. the world, all over the world, get together. And now it's it's professionals. They go back to just letting the amateurs, the college and the high school kids that aren't professional, let them compete. I'm all for that. I'm, that's that's fine. Right. Right. So before we get into your career, let's talk about your post career. You, I believe, are coaching now, or having a cat. Yeah, I'm doing some local coaching here in, in Kansas City. Since COVID, I was coaching in a collegiate summer league, similar to like the Cape Cod League up in East East Coast. I was coaching in um, Victoria, British Columbia, and the West Coast League is a league that had teams from Canada. Washington and Oregon, mm. and it was more of your West Coast colleges, your D1, D2 schools would send kids there to play a 54-game summer season, similar to minor league baseball where you play series and you have some travel and, and do things like that. So I was coaching there uh, for two summers. I coached and finished up my undergrad at uh, Park University in the University of Missouri from 2012 to 2017. Um, coaching at the collegiate level and then coaching summer summer ball and just doing some local coaching here in Can in the Kansas City area with uh, high school age kids. So it's similar to AAU travel. It's travel travel ball uh, here in the Midwest. Do you find the coaching differently than college ball, high school ball? Do you find it differently than coaching, like if you were to go and do the minors or majors, or is it the same? I prefer coaching college ball better than being in the minor leagues because in the minor leagues, you're told 
what players are prospects and what players aren't. And it, a lot of things are dictated to you from the organization mm-hmm. on down of what you should do with players. And coaching college ball and doing summer ball, doing that, you have more freedom to do what you want to do as a coach and not so much being told how to uh, how to run things with, with the players. So I, I like that freedom to be able to to do what you want to do more so than uh, than in minor league baseball where you're being told, you know, this is the prospect, so do this, but he's going to get X amount of at-bats a year, and this pitcher, he's going to get cut off at this certain amount of time, and we want to do this with him and that with him. You know, th- those kind of things didn't really appeal to me to want to coach in professional baseball in the minor at the minor league level. So you had a nine-year career from 90 to 99 with five different teams. How hard of a grind is it to play that many games, 162 in a season? And how is conditioning? What does conditioning play into a factor of that long a season when you're away from family and all that? Well, for me, being an outfielder and specifically being a center fielder, I had to make sure that my legs were in shape and that's what I worked on a lot in the off season just to make sure that my lower body and my legs were in shape for the grind of all those those games and then just running around the outfield so I did a lot more lower body work to make sure that you know I could, I could get through a, a season and you know I never went on the DL and played you know, pretty much I was an everyday player for the 10-plus seasons or whatever, nine-plus seasons that I was in, in the big leagues. I was a guy that was counted on to play 145 to 155 games out of 162. And mm-hmm. uh, I just made sure that I, I got myself ready in the offseason, really worked my legs and, and made sure they were strong because that – is what got me through, um, got me through injury free, and I was probably a little lucky with uh, not having any freak injuries, running into walls or uh, sliding into catchers or second baseman getting hit by a pitch. You just the freaky things that can happen during a season. I didn't miss too many games for for injury, uh, pretty much for my whole career. Now, tell us about because you played right in the middle of your career with the lockout. Take us through that year. When were you guys told that you guys were going to be locked out of the season? And what went on through your guys as a, in a player's mind, knowing the fact that you guys were in a lockout and you guys couldn't play for a year? Well, we missed just a little bit of spring training. I think the lockout was in 90, 1990. So, yeah, the spring training was ninety. And then the strike was in 94. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, the strike. Yeah, so I, I went through a lockout in 1990 that had a shortened spring training. Mm-hmm. Then we played pretty much three-fourths of the season in 94. Missed the, I think, in mid-August or so is when the season got canceled in 94. We probably realized that there wasn't going to be 
a continuation of the season or postseason in mid-September of uh, of '94, and then just started to get ready and hopefully hope there was a spring training in '95. So there was a lot of uncertainty. I was a player rep for the American League, so I was involved in a lot of negotiation and talks. So I kind of had a good idea of where things were headed and when we were going to wrap it up and get back to work again. And I thought that we would have a spring training and have a normal regular season. We didn't play a full regular season, but um, but I knew that by March of 95 that there was going to be some sort of a season. Didn't know what the parameters were going to be, but I knew there was going to be a season and then, you know, I inform guys just to be ready, to be ready to go by the end of March. And, uh, you know, I think we ended up playing 145 games or 140 or something in that range and in for the 95 season. Now, if you can remember, take us through, since you said you were on that committee, what was what was being said between... I'm guessing it was you and the owners, right? Or was it you against the commissioner? Yeah, the ownership groups, the owners that were being, you know, they were telling the commissioner and whoever lawyers were negotiating, you know, they, they were trying to implement a salary cap and change some of the structures of the of the league. Mm. and the Players Association was not uh, on board with that. And that was one of the main issues. There were, there were a lot of other issues that were being floated around also, but the main one was that the owners wanted – they wanted some cost certainty. That was a big word for them. They wanted to know going into seasons, and they wanted to set – they thought setting a salary cap would uh, would be something that would be beneficial to them, and they tried to pass that along to the players that it would be in the long run it would be beneficial for the players also mm. to accept the salary cap, which, as we found out, that that wasn't going to be the, that wasn't going to be the case. They were trying to put a drag on salaries. They had been in trouble for collusion. Mm-hmm. In the eighties, <laughs> in the eighties, right. So they were just trying. They were trying to find a way to put a drag on salaries, even though revenue was continuing to go up and up. All these new stadiums were being built. You know, that was in that era, that six or seven year era when three fourths of the league moved into a new stadium or was getting a new stadium on the books to to being built, and more revenue was coming into the game uh, through a lot of different streams. MLB.com was starting to uh, form at that, 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 that time. So there were a lot of revenue streams that were coming in. The players knew that. And the owners wanted some call certainty and wanted wanted to cap everything. But on the horizon were all these new stadiums, new revenue streams, um, the internet, all that, um, TV money. So players were not going to agree to a salary cap and the owners tried to break the union and pit the younger players against some of the older players and you know it, it got some of the meetings were 
were pretty uh, pretty feisty, and um, I was very surprised that the owners took the stance that they did, mm-hmm. and they tried to implement replacement players early in, in spring training in 95 and threatened to start the season with replacement players. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that was something that I did not see coming. I didn't think it was going to get to that point. But uh, fortunately, both sides were able to come to an agreement and we were able to play a 95, the 95 season. And I don't think there's been a work stoppage since 95. No, there hasn't. But there was close. We'll, we'll, we'll probably have a lockout. Yeah. We'll probably have a lockout in the next couple of days. But I still don't think that's gonna, going to be something that's going to drag into the regular season. Yeah, now you beat me too. I was actually going to ask you about that because last year before the 60-game season came about, there was an issue between the players and the owners as well. And like you just answered my question, you you think there's go, there might be a stoppage, but it won't be that bad. They'll come to agreement. Well, right. they'll, they'll, I think there's going to be a lockout. There'll be a stoppage in name only. Yeah. Because in December, there's nothing going on. Right. right. So you're seeing all these free agent signings and trades and, and things going on uh, right. transaction-wise. That'll stop for a while. Yeah. But I think there'll still be negotiating going on. And if anything, there may be a shortened spring training. But I don't foresee anything spilling over and jeopardizing the regular season. Now, I'm, if I'm saying this correctly, tell me if I am. Uh, your father was also a former major leaguer, Hal McRae. You got to manage under him. How was that experience like in Kansas City? Yeah, he uh, played for the Reds and the Royals, so I grew up around around the ballpark. And I got called up to the big leagues late in 90. Mm-hmm. And in the 91 season, he came over probably midway through or so to manage. And um, he had never seen me play a whole lot of ball mm-hmm. growing yeah, up in high on the school. Road. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah, because he was playing. So that was the first time he got to see me play on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm. And the first time that the family was together, mm. for the most part, and not scattered all over the country. So it was a neat experience for the four years or so that um, I had a chance to, to play under my father. And the last two years in Kansas City, 93 and 94, we had real good teams. At the time of the strike, I think we were four games out. Mm-hmm. Um, and had a realistic shot of making it to the postseason in 94 at the, at the time of the strike. So... Uh, there were a lot of exciting and positive things going on those last two years when uh, my dad was managing the Royals. Can you name the other two? I can think of one other, and that's the Griffies. They were able to play and coach under each other. Can you name the other two? Because I guess you were there was two others besides you two and the Griffies. Uh, I think um, I think Moises Alou got to play for his dad. Okay. Um. I think I think he was able able to play play in Montreal for Felipe Alou, and then I don't know if the Boons played for for their father. Um, that would be the only other one, the ones that are, 
could say maybe played for played for their father who was uh, managing as far as father and sons playing together. It don't happen much at all. <laughs> yeah, Griffey's, Griffey's did it in a big league game first, but me and my father played in a spring training game in 1986. Before oh, really? the, the Griffey's played in 89. There you go. Something. In a big league game. But, uh, but my father and I, we played in a game in spring training of 1986 together. So like you said, you made your debut August 7th of 1990 with those Royals uh, and under your pops. Uh, take us through that experience of you getting a call up. Did your daddy call you or that you knew that you were going to be called up or who out, who called you knowing that you were going to be called up? I was, my dad was coaching in Montreal at the time, so oh, okay, I he didn't you. know. Okay. I gotcha. Never mind. Ned. Um, I was, in, I was in double a Memphis, Tennessee, with that tenant with the Memphis Tennessee double A team affiliate of the Royals, we were playing in mm-hmm. Huntsville, Alabama, mm-hmm. which was the I think the A's affiliate. Mm-hmm. And I just got a knock on the door by my manager, Jeff Cox, at like two or three o'clock in the morning saying that I needed to go to the ballpark, get my stuff, because I was gonna be flying to Kansas City the next uh, the next morning. So that's that, that's how it went. It wasn't anything Grand, you know, I was asleep. It was three, four o'clock in the morning. I got a knock on the door. I went to the ballpark, got my stuff, and that was the age before cell phones, so I couldn't call anybody at that point because I was on the move. Right. I called my mom, I think, in the Atlanta airport is where I connected before I went to Kansas City and told her, and um, you know, she was able to be there for the for the first game that I played in, but. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a whirlwind day, getting called called up and coming to Kansas City and uh, making my big league debut. Did not think I was going to be playing in the game that night, mm-hmm. and I saw my name in the lineup and uh, you know was playing that night. And uh, I don't really remember a whole lot. It was a blur with everything going on, but uh, I was you know excited to get the opportunity and. You know, they said I may only be in the big leagues for a couple of weeks and then I may get sent back down to the minor leagues. But, uh, you know, 10 years later, I was still still around. So uh, it's one of those things where you have to take advantage of your opportunity. And Bo Jackson went down. He got hurt. I got called up. And he didn't want to play center field anymore. He wanted to stick and left. He thought that would be easier on his body. And I got called up. Played well enough to uh, to warrant sticking around the rest of the season, and then uh, made the team as a starting center fielder opening day uh, in 1991. Now, your uh, first game, did you have any goosebumps, uh, or did you just go by thrill the moment? Because I know yeah, I was just kind of in a haze the, the whole time. It was, like I said, I got I had no sleep. Okay. And flying, you know, getting to Kansas City and all the you know, everything that goes on that first day, I got to the ballpark, I think around 3, 4 o'clock for the 7 o'clock game. And, you know, it was just, there was so much going on quickly, I didn't have time to be nervous. I saw my name in the lineup, got in there and, and played. And, you know, by, by the time I was able to catch my breath and calm down, 
I was back at the hotel with my mom hanging out after the game was over and just trying to process everything that that had just transpired in the last 18 hours. So I saw you were a switch hitter. You you your batting average was 38 points higher from the right side than the left side. Take us through the art of switch hitting. How hard is it to hit uh, switch hit? It's hard because you're two different people. You know, I had more power. I hit more home runs and extra base hits from the left side, mm. but my batting average was higher from the right side. I was a natural right-handed hitter, mm. but I didn't do a lot of damage as far as home runs and doubles and extra base hits from the right side. I was more of a singles hitter from the right side, and I think out of the 103 or four home runs I hit career, probably 80% of those were from the uh, from the left side. So I was... I was a more, I was a better hitter from the left side as far as uh, driving the ball, but my natural side was right-handed. But uh, you have to work on two different sides. You're like two different people, and over the course of a year, one side is always better than the other. You're never really right there at, at equal levels. One is ahead, and I always had to work extra, especially on my left-handed side, because that was the side that wasn't as natural for me. And I also see you spent most of your time as a leadoff hitter. What What's your mindset as a leadoff hitter? I was not your typical leadoff hitter, so my mindset was a little bit different. I didn't walk a whole lot until mm-hmm. later in my career. Mm-hmm. I like to like swing the bat. I was just put in the leadoff position because I was one of the fastest guys on the team. Mm-hmm. I just I like to swing. I like to uh, swing the bat, and I like to get on base that way. Later in my career, when I knew the leagues a little bit better and understood myself as a hitter a little bit better, mm-hmm. I was a little bit more patient at the plate. And I, I hit down in the order with the Mets and sometimes with the with the Cubs, so I was a little bit more patient. But uh, you know, for most of my career, I like to get up there and between the first three or four pitches, if it was – something hittable or a strike, I, I was swinging at it. And, um, and I wasn't really a guy trying to get walks, get on base by getting walks. Now, like you said, you you got close to the playoffs but never made the playoffs, unfortunately. Um, did that sting you a bit as a player that you could never make the playoffs? Yeah, it was uh, frustrating because I was close almost down to the last game of the season four or five times where teams that I was on had a, had a chance to, to make it to the postseason. So playing that many games and not getting there was uh, was a little frustrating seeing my friends play in the playoffs and being on teams. You know, the 98 Cubs beat us out when I was with the Mets mm. for the wild card, and I was on the – Cubs in 97, so missed it by a year there. And then the the Mets made it to the playoffs in 99 and 2000, and I was there for a little bit of the year in 99 before I got traded in the following year. So I was close to making it, but uh, didn't quite get there. And that, that was something that uh, you know I got to experience a lot of things in my career, but making it to the postseason, you know, playing almost 10 years and 1,400 games or something of that um, and not making it to the playoffs, not being able to taste any uh, 
you know, October, late October baseball was, uh, was, was disappointing. Now what about being all-star? Did you make any all-star teams? No, I was close. Gold gloves, all-star games. I was, I was close to doing, doing that. I had a chance from, I had a good, my best years were 93 to 98 Mm -hmm. and 93, 94, 95 and 96. I had legitimate chances to make the all-star team team and and didn't, didn't do it, but you have outfielders like King Griffey Jr., Kenny Lofton, yeah, right. you know, guys, guys like that. So, right. uh, you know, I put up some good numbers and had some good years, but those guys uh, put up some better numbers also. So it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't mind. The all-star game thing to me wasn't that big of a deal because I knew that, you know, I, I, I was worthy and I played, played well enough. Right. And a lot of times that's a popularity contest. And playing in Kansas City, you weren't going to have too many years where more than one or two players was going to make it from the Royals Royals team. So that didn't bother me much at all. Right. You know, I, I I would have liked to make it made an All Star team and won a Gold Glove, but postseason was what I really wanted to do. You know, you want to win ball games. That, that's your thing. Now you were not not many players from their career get to spend time in both leagues. You did that, especially in a time in your era where it was pretty much, I want to say, half and half, dominated by the AL, half dominated by the NL. How, how in your mindset, since you played in both, was there a league more difficult than the other? I thought the American League was top to bottom, better but I like the brand of baseball in the National League Mm. and I enjoyed my five years in the National League more than I did my five years in America I think my game was suited better for the style of play in the the National League so I, I like the National League better but I thought that talent wise team for team top to bottom there was better players and better talent in the American League. There was better pitching in the National League. How how difficult was it to pitch? I mean, uh, sorry, to hit against guys like that. You had Maddox, Smoltz. Uh, yeah, the Braves Blatt. were tough. And that, you know, with the Mets in that division, they weren't a yeah. whole lot of fun. They had a great staff. The Padres had good staffs at the time. Yeah, Kevin uh, Brown. Giants here. Yeah. So there were, there were a lot of good, good staffs in the uh, – in the uh, National League, but I just thought that at that point in my career, my my game, I was able to take it to another level in the American or in the National League, and I, I enjoyed playing in the National League more than I did in the American. Now let's see if you remember this. It may have been too long ago, but I don't know. You may have remembered this. this is a big time in your career. You had a uh, July fourteenth and ninety one. Can you uh, remember what you did? Yeah, I think that was in Detroit, and I hit two home runs. So I had yep. my first two home run game. Yep, you had six RBIs. I think I only had two, two, two home run games. One with the Royals and one with the Cubs. But that, that was one. I think I hit a two run home run and a grand slam. So I had like six RBIs or you seven did. RBIs yep. on a hot day in yep. uh, in Detroit. Yep, eighteen to four route against them. Pitching must have been horrible that had, day. As a team, we had six or seven home runs that day. Ouch. 
Ouch. Must have been an off day for Detroit. <laughs> yeah, they weren't very good at the, that time. So, again, like like you said, you were a journeyman. You played for five teams. Um, honestly, I know you liked playing for those teams, but would you honestly have liked to spend your career with just one team and that be the team that drafted you in the Royals? Most players don't get to do that. You know, I, I spent 10 years in the Royals organization from 85 to, to 94. So I was, I was with the Royals and Cubs most of my career. Mm. Uh, parts of three years with the, with the, with the Mets, but the rest of the time I was with the Rockies, I only played 10 games with the Rockies and I only played a month and a half with the Blue Jays. So really I was, my career was with three teams that, that I played with. It was the, the Royals and I was in that organization for 10 years, parts of three years with the Cubs and parts of three years with, with the Mets. So, and I, being five years with one team right now is, is hard to do. You don't see a lot of guys right. that spend their whole career with the team right. the way the game is situated now. So I, I think that just being able to be in the Royals organization for 10 years, playing five years in the minor leagues and five years in the big, big leagues, you know, I felt like I was you know, a big part of the Royals organization because I would have been there for, for that long. Now... Let's talk about your final game in 99. Did you know that was the end of your career after that game, or did you want to play again? And got released at the end of spring training with the, with the Cardinals. Had a chance, opportunity to sign like a minor league deal with a couple other teams. And I also had a chance to work for ESPN and do broadcasting, which is something that I've been doing for a while. Mm. And so I just went into broadcast. I had knee surgery after the season was over. So I don't know if I was even 100% or, or not going into spring training of 2000. And I had an opportunity to work for ESPN, and I jumped on that opportunity and started doing broadcasting from 2000 to 2017. Um I broadcast uh, from 2000 to 2008. I broadcast Major League Baseball games pretty much exclusively, and then from 2009 to 2017, I did a little bit with the Royals and did a lot of college and minor league baseball. So I wasn't I wasn't really overly concerned with continuing if I had an opportunity to do something else. And broadcasting was something that I wanted to do, and my body was kind of beat up at the time from playing 15 years of professional baseball. So it didn't work out in 2000 with the Cardinals, and but it did work out for me to, to uh, get into broadcasting. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, because I saw that. I assume, yeah, you got into broadcasting. You were with WGN. You were with ESPN. Uh, and like you said, a couple others. So take us through being a broadcaster, an analyst, shall I say, uh, is it different calling the game instead of actually being on a field? Because I know Romo, I know this is a different sport, but football, he's pretty good He's because he's a quarter, he was a quarterback. So when he's analyzing it on right. the field of what happened, it's like he's actually on the field. 
Did you have to do that as a broad as a broadcaster? Well, it was something that I'd been doing in the off seasons when when I was still playing. So it's something that I wanted to do. So I, I'd taken broadcasting classes during the strike in '94. I went to the University of Kansas and took journalism, broadcast journalism classes. So I was prepping for whenever I got done playing mm. uh, to go ahead and get into broadcasting. And when I started doing it, like anything else, you you make your mistakes, you learn. And, you know, as a player, I always tried to think like a manager, think along with what the managers of each team were, were going to do, moves they're going to make, things like that. So I think that helped me out as far as how I saw a game and how I looked at a game from my vantage point as being on the field or or being in the dugout or being in the, in the booth because I always tried to look at it as how the coaches were trying to set things up and what they were what they were trying to do. Now, here's a scenario. You were is it you were a hitter. Here's a scenario. Runner on first and second. Two outs as a hitter in your game of the 90s to today's game. Give us two scenarios of what is going on through a hitter's mindset. Because you coach, obviously, today, and then you played in the 90s, which was a different era. That scenario, what do you? what is the mindset of a hitter? Well, a lot depends on the score, the inning. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Let me. Okay. Let me. Sorry, I I forgot about that. Okay. So it's the bottom bottom of the ninth. Two outs. Two outs. The count for the batter is two two. If it's late in the game, you're looking at you're probably facing their closer or one of their top relievers. So with the count being 2-2, the reliever is trying to go to his outfits to get a strikeout. And if you look at the scouting reports, they always say, what's his outfits? Which means, what's the pitch does he like to go to mm. in a tight situation? So you have that in the back of your mind as a hitter. You don't, you're not sitting on that pitch, but you have that in the back of your mind that he may throw that. That's something that he likes to throw to you. And then you also have to go back in your memory banks to think when I faced this pitcher earlier in the year, how he pitched me and things like that. So there's a lot of things that run through your mind in that situation, but you go back to your scouting report and just go back to what you, what you know from facing him before. And if you're a right-handed hitter, it's like, how does he throw right-handed hitters in this situation? Left-handed hitter, what's he like to do to left-handed hitters in that situation? So a lot of it is just going back and remembering. And I wrote down, I had a notebook mm. that I carried with me, and I wrote down things that pitchers do, what catchers do, so I could help, things that could help me with stealing bases, picking up signs, just things like that, along with the scouting reports that we got. Uh, before each series from the advanced scouts. So I just made sure that I read those so when I got in certain situations, 
I had a good idea. My thought process, it might not work, but my thought process was was good because I knew I had a good idea of what was going on in this situation and what they may do to come back what, what I could do. Now, obviously you got to play baseball like your father did. Did you want your kid wanting to play baseball or... Or did I have you... a daughter, that's all, so it, okay. that, that's uh, off the table. Okay. And uh, she's 15 and she's into music and arts. Well, there you so, go. Uh, that's something. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, no, I'm not going to have an athlete on my side. My brother has a son that plays high school football down at Lakewood Ranch. Mm-hmm. And my sister lives in the Tampa area. She has two boys and a girl. The oldest is a girl. She's a sophomore. In high school, she's a golfer. So I don't think we're going to have any baseball players, mm. uh, college or high school, out of my brother or sister's kids. But we may have some college athletes down the road. Well, there you go. There you go. So next next question I have is, you had obviously you had a 10-year career. Uh, give us some of your best stories you had off and on the field. The best things are just, you know, hanging out with your teammates. Um, you're with them for from March or late February to early October. You spend more time with your teammates than their families do during that during that period of time. So you have a close close bond with them. You get to travel to different cities, experience different restaurants, do different things. So those were the fun things. You know, going to New York and having an off day and taking half the team out and going out to a nice dinner at a steakhouse in New York that you would probably never do and, and getting to do that with your teammates. Um, you know, just experiencing those things, the bus rides, the plane, plane flights, playing cards on the plane, hanging out. You know, th- those were all, you know, golf outings. Those were all fun things on the field just competing with your with your teammates and trying to you know trying to win a ball game the energy the effort and everything that goes into a nine inning ball game when you see these guys work every day in spring training and and put their work in and guys that come six o'clock in the morning to get treatment to prepare themselves for, for a game, you know, that, that's a special bond that's created over the course of the season when you see that. And then when you play with the same guys over and over again, year after year, you know, a three hour game means a lot when you put that kind of effort, concentration, want to into it. So it, it creates something special especially for teams that were good, but even teams, you know, that, that aren't, there's still something to be said about trying to work towards a common goal when you have that many guys working hard and putting that much into it. And you, you sense that. So there, there's, uh, you know, there's something special about a group. So those were the fun things, you know, on the field, off the field, just by being – one of 
there's only been 22 or 23,000 people that have ever walked the face of this earth that have played Major League Baseball. So you're one of them. You're in that small fraternity. And to be able to compete every day is 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 a blessing and it's, it's something that's pretty cool and that we never did take for granted. Now, two-part question. Since you were obviously a hitter, uh, in your career, who'd you have the most success against uh, pitcher-wise and who dominated you pitching-wise? Yeah, I don't know who I had the most success I know I, I hit well against the Padres staff and the Giants and, and, and some of those teams I hit hit well against. As far as individual pitchers, I don't I don't know uh, that I struggled against the the Braves staff. I know I struggled against them. The Blue Jays had a real good staff when I was in the American League. Uh, I, I remember I didn't I didn't hit well against the Blue Jays. I didn't hit well in the Dome there um as far as like individual players that i thought i hit well i'm not sure i know i some of the guys are they're hall of famers you know dennis actually i I think i had a couple home runs off of him roger clemens even though he's not in the hall of fame he probably should you know i had good numbers i think i had good numbers against clemens pedro martinez i think i had some good days against those guys uh you know, Nolan Ryan, I got a couple hits off of Nolan Ryan. I don't know if my numbers were good against Ryan, but uh, it was just it was just fun to say I competed against those guys. Do you still talk to anybody that you played against or played for? I, yeah, I still, in my travels, I'll still see, um, you know, Pat Mahomes Sr. was a teammate of mine with the Mets, mm-hmm. and with his son playing here with the Chiefs, I see him from time to time when he comes into Kansas City. So there's a lot of guys that still keep uh, keep in touch and get together from time to time. There you go. Uh, so let's talk a little about uh, today's game. I, I You obviously coach it, and there wasn't much of this back in the 90s when you played. Do you like it, how much it's analytics-driven now? I think there's a place for it, but... Some organizations, are, I think, put too much emphasis on it and don't don't use the baseball people that they have or had in their organization. You know, the eyes and the ears, and you know, understand that analytic-driven teams. They, some of them have done well with it and how they use it, and other ones have not. But the true test, the analytics can't tell you if a guy is a team player or not. They don't tell you if he's able to play injured or, you know, what, what happens in tough situations. If he if he can handle do you playing in New York or playing in L.A. or playing in my you – know, analytics don't, analytics don't tell you what kind of character a guy is. It's just a spitting out numbers. And I think that what you saw with some teams in the postseason, you know, what some of the moves that the Braves made, if it was just analytics, they might not have done those things. Right. They ended up winning winning the World Series. And I know their manager is not a guy that's, you know, he looks at the numbers, but he doesn't do everything 
that the numbers tell you to do. Like some some managers, it looks like everything's scripted. If it says this, you do this. Then like you don't go by what your gut says or what your feel is. Right. So now I got I got to ask you, uh, Hall of Fame. I know you're not a voter. Nobody is. But do you think that guys who were in the steroid era should be in the Hall of Fame? Well, I just think that I look at numbers, and if there's analytics, you know, that you look at numbers, these guys put up numbers that are Hall of Fame worthy. And once you start putting some guys in the Hall of Fame that people suspected or thought they might have been using, that opens up the door for everybody else. So you can't have two or three guys in that people suspect that we're using, and then the other guys you can't, can't you know can't leave them out. So I think the next two or three years of All Star ballots, because there's guys that I think that are that are in there now, and I'm not going to mention any names. We you know, probably know, but I think there are some guys in there now that people suspected were using, and they're in. So what? Why are they in, and other guys aren't? True. If they have Hall of Fame numbers. True. Uh, now tell tell the two commissioners. I know you've seen what Manfred does, and obviously you played with C C League. Uh, right. Out of the two, who is who is the better commissioner? Well, I think that Seeley did more for the game, even though I don't think he was a good commissioner because he owned a team. Mm-hmm. So that it's kind of kind of hard when you have you have a vested interest in your investment and your your team in Milwaukee. But I think he was able to grow the game better than what Manford has done so far. Because you see, in Seelix's era, those every those new stadiums got built. Right. TV money went up. Right. MLB.com, revenue stream, all these new revenue streams came in when Seelix was there. World Baseball Classic, things like all these, all these uh, things came to. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to give him credit for all of that, but it came under his watch. So, the game floor is under his watch. So Maybe in spite of him, but it did. I have to agree with you on that because Manfred, I don't think he's really done nothing besides hide, uh, hide the cheating that's been going on in baseball, especially in 2018. I, I don't think he... Yeah, I don't think we'll find out what, what kind of commissioner he is until we get this... CBA sign right. and move on, right. and then we'll see we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. So uh, you've had I thought you had a successful career. Um, I know I'm not even going. to I think anybody that played in the big leagues is successful. Right. Myself, right. You right. Know, right. Um, and I'm not even going to ask you. I'm not even going to ask you the Hall of Fame question because I know what you're going to tell me already. But <laughs> I think you had a good career. Look, looking back at your career, what was it a com- was it a complete success to you? And I think so, you 
I played almost 10 years in the big leagues. The average career is four years. Um, I was an everyday player for pretty much the whole time I was in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. I was able to um, accomplish some things that I didn't ever think I was going to accomplish. And, you know, you, you play every day. You... You make it to the big leagues. You play more than four years. You know all those, all those things to me. I'm, you know, I didn't make the postseason, but I was happy to be able to have a successful, almost ten year major league career. That I couldn't have said any better. Um, so, a couple more questions before I let you go. The first one is, um, if. You were a hitter coming up. What would you tell them, and what would what advice would you give them? If what? If you, if if you were if you were a kid getting into the game as a hitter, what advice would you give them, and how would you help them succeed along the way as a hitter? As a hitter? Yeah. I would tell them to not try to overanalyze everything like most hitters today are doing and just try to keep things as simple as, as possible. You know, don't don't talk about launch angle and excellent velocity and all those things. Just try to hit the ball hard and good things will happen, but don't worry about all these other terminologies and things that are out there. You know, when you get up to the plate, try to get a good pitch to hit, understand your strike zone, get a strike, and just try to hit the ball hard. And last question I have for you is, the five teams you played for, they haven't been successful throughout the years. What... Uh, well, recently, um, the Royals were successful about five, six years ago. Yeah, the Royals won a World Series, right, the Cubs right. won a World Series, and the Mets right. won a World Series. So right. they they had some success. Yeah. But as of right now, in like three, as of two, three years ago, what do your teams that you played for need to do to get back to the playoffs? I think the Cubs are going to rebuild. So they they had a good run of like five years. Where they were, they went to three National League championship yes. games. Yes. So they're gonna have they're gonna have to take a step back and rebuild. The Royals went to the World Series in fourteen and fifteen, so it's been seven years now. Yep. They're in a rebuilding stage. Uh, the Mets they, they're spending a lot of money. I don't know if if that's gonna make them any better, but they're they're closer to playoff contention than the Royals or the Cubs, I think. The Rockies, I think they're a long way from playoff contention, and the Blue Jays are have one of the best young teams in baseball. So I think I think uh, the Blue Jays and the Mets are the closest to being playoff teams, and the other ones are probably three to five years away. I couldn't agree with you more. I agree. It was fun. Thank you for coming on. Short notice. I appreciate it. Uh, you're more than welcome to come on. Oh, no problem. You're more than welcome to come on as many times. And hey, when you're in this area, hit me up. 
Let's let's meet up sometime when you're in this area. Since okay, I'll let you, I'll let you know when I come back down. Yeah, for yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe we'll hit up a Rays game or something if you're in the area. Okay, that sounds good. But yeah, it was fun. I got your contact. Please share it. As uh, more viewers, more better. And if you know anybody that's interested, have them hit me up for an interview. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you for having me on. Definitely. It was fun. I'll send you the copy of the episode, and that way you can have it to listen as well. But, yeah, it was fun. Okay. You take care. You too. Enjoy. Stay safe, All right. okay? All right. You okay. too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Brian McRae, everybody. Former major leaguer. Along with five teams. Excellent, excellent episode. Gotta gotta watch it, slash tune in. Very good conversation with him. Till then, you guys have a good night. Be looking forward to talking to you guys on Friday. We got former all-star pitcher for my Padres, Heath Bell. Looking forward to it. So you all have a good night.